Hi, thanks for tuning to Just One A with Aaron Frischberg. I'm here talking to Nick Grundish, the VP of Battery Technology at Energy X. How's it going, Nick? Doing well, thank you. Happy to be here. Awesome. So just to kind of start it off, I'm curious, if you had $50,000 to spend on one item, what would you spend it on? Uh, I'm not good at these types of questions, actually. Um, my, my conservative side really wants to say I would just buy $50,000 worth of an S&P 500 index fund. But if uh, if I had to spend $50,000 on something that was like tangible, um, yeah, I'd, I don't know. Um, I would probably buy, God, one thing. That's actually really a really difficult question. Yeah. I guess $50,000 in the S&P sounds good to me. Yeah, I guess actually the other thing I was going to say is a nice watch. Um, yeah. Maybe like a like a nice Rolex or something. Um, something my dad always wanted and I'm not sure he ever got around to buying. So uh, sort of as an ode to him, I think I'd probably do something like that. Yeah, that's really nice. I, I've also been kind of dabbling in the watch market and I really like Patek Philippe. That's kind of my life goal right now. You already know more than I do. <laughs> I know Rolex and Cartier and that's about it. <laughs> Patek is basically just like Rolex just amped up probably unnecessarily. Like I think the entry is like $25,000, which is ridiculous for a watch to be honest. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't watch Joe Rogan regularly, but I remember seeing one thing where he was talking to like a master watchmaker and then seeing some of those like mechanisms they use is just insane and then the price tag of course goes into the six figures like very quickly yeah um, it's it's really crazy yeah but anyways fifty thousand dollars that yeah i'd find a nice watch to to buy yeah that's great um and then did you just want to give a 45 second spiel about what you're doing at uh energy x yeah, so um, at EnergyX, we are sort of like, a, we span the whole lithium supply chain, so our, our sort of mantra is brine to battery. Um, originally, the company was started with the primary focus of developing more efficient extraction technologies for, um, you know, lithium precursor materials. Obviously, the booming electric vehicle market, lithium has become um, really a prominent material that um, the supply chain is, is going to have to address in the coming years. Uh, and sort of, sort of the materials we were looking at also seemed interesting for um, actually using inside, uh, you know, rechargeable batteries. And that's sort of where my background came in. And uh, Teague, the, the founder of EnergyX, um, happened to be, um, I was fortunate enough to happen to meet him at the sort of the, the time when the company started getting its legs. And uh, he brought me on board to sort of start the battery um, technology team or battery research team. Um, and so the, the part I'm actually responsible for is the research and development and scale up of sort of the lithium metal next generation battery technologies that we're working on. Wow. And you also earned your PhD under a Nobel laureate, what I read? Yeah. So um, uh, by complete dumb luck, actually, uh, my undergrad was in mechanical engineering, which for some reason was John's um, home department. Uh, he is a physicist by training and sort of like a solid state chemist. Chemistry was more so what he did. So what he was doing in the mechanical engineering department is absolutely beyond me. But um, I was dumb enough to just kind of cold email him and ask him sort of what, if I could join his group because I had just taken a 
a material science class where like we learned you know about the different types of steels and engineering materials um, I had no idea that his research was completely different um, and I didn't really have too good of an idea of who he was um, so yeah cold emailed him asked to join his lab he accepted and uh, I think the postdoc I was working with at the time sort of lobbied to to have him let me join as a graduate student um, and he encouraged me to look elsewhere because you know he was 92 or 93 at the time so he I think he was a little bit worried about lasting <laughs> to the end of my degree if I if I stayed but um, after looking around and sort of seeing the research he was doing um, and the research everybody else was doing and sort of I, I guess there was like a period in there where it kind of clicked you know who who he was and what you know that I could learn a lot from him just beyond you know the the scientific process and his method of thinking about about scientific problems um, it was very obvious to me that that his group was where I'd, I should stay um, so yeah that was that was a very long-winded answer but um, yeah uh, I think he won the Nobel Prize in 2019 uh, I was about halfway through my PhD at the time and then of course COVID hit shortly thereafter and uh, you know a couple years later here we are <laughs> Yeah. And he won the Nobel Prize for rechargeable lithium ion batteries? Yeah. Uh, so without going too much into it, there were three people that won. Um, so Stan kind of discovered the concept of um, the rechargeable battery, um, you know, that, could, that had potential to be recharged hundreds of times. Um, unfortunately, the specific materials he was using to demonstrate the concepts sort of kept exploding. Um, so he was doing the work at Exxon and they abandoned the project. Then John came along um, and showed that, you know, the materials you were looking at were, were nice from a fundamental perspective, but these are the actual practical materials we should be looking at, lithium cobalt oxide. It gives you a much higher voltage um, and actually provides practical energy densities for like useful devices. And then uh, the third guy, Akira Yoshino, came along and paired John's uh, cathode material, lithium cobalt oxide, with a carbon or graphitic carbon anode, and then kind of formed the, the whole device at Sony. Um, so yeah, that's just a, a quick background of those three. So John's contribution was really the, the, I mean, there was a lot of, of course, chemistry and physics that went into his contribution, but if you were to sum it up, he showed sort of the practical materials. Um, that would be useful for a, a lithium-ion battery that's useful in a commercial setting. And then I'm also curious how it kind of tied in learning from someone that somewhat pioneered lithium in general, lithium batteries, and working at EnergyX. Do you feel like that's really come together? Yeah, actually. Um, so it's something I hadn't given a whole lot of thought of uh, a thought to until you kind of said it, but. Um, so John, the, the one takeaway I, I took from John is that always approach things from a fundamental perspective um, and work upwards. But also, um, he actually had no background in electrochemistry or batteries or anything like that. His background was in um, sort of transition metal oxides and the related physical phenomena that you can observe in sort of the weird space of the transition metals on the periodic table. Um, and so when it came time for him to, to work on batteries, he had expertise that nobody else in the field working on it had. So he brought a unique perspective. And so I think actually we harbor a lot of that at EnergyX because uh, we started and mo you know there's a large portion of the company that's devoted to lithium extraction from brine. Um, and so 
the sort of battery division that I oversee, um, there's a lot of sort of intercommunication um, and development of science. So talking with some of the experts that we have on say like membrane science for extraction or like solvent extraction uh, methods of you know removing lithium from brine, it's, it's really interesting to sort of trade perspectives and sort of see um, what what new science we can develop just from you know not having a fresh set of eyes on it or you know see having different perspectives um, just as an example I mean we've um, you know the in con working with each other we've sort of developed a new method of making lithium metal rather than the process that's been in place for a hundred years obviously there there's going to be a slew of engineering and scale up and all those concerns and things like that but um, just you know in terms of proving the concept uh, you know we were able to develop something new and, and prove it out very quickly and I think that's sort of an ode to John in, in that respect of um, coming to a new field with a fresh set of eyes and a unique background and and really pushing forward you know advancement in a an area that that is kind of ripe for it sure yeah and what, if you're able to share, what is this new method that you're talking about, about extracting? Oh, um, yeah, so I mean, I, I can, it's an electrochemical based method that can be performed at room temperature. So the final product is still, you know, lithium metal. Um, and we are able to, of course, we're still optimizing the process and everything like that. But essentially, um, we can go directly from, you know, lithium brine to a lithium metal product um, in sort of one process step rather than... Um, you know, the typical method is, you know, molten salts electrolysis. You start with, you know, 400, 500 degrees Celsius. You have to have a eutectic um, composition of potassium and lithium chloride. And then you sort of electrochemically remove the lithium from that solution. Um, but again, going from 400 to 500 degrees Celsius down to room temperature is quite a big improvement. Um, so, yeah, again, just uh, in terms of Obviously, it's not like a, a direct one-to-one -one example as, you know, what John did with the lithium-ion battery, but it at least sort of um, uses the same, um, or is an example of the same type of situation where, again, fresh out of eyes from different fields tackling a new problem um, in that respect. Yeah. And... I'm also curious, so you originally majored in for your bachelor's in mechanical engineering. Yeah. And so and then you shifted over towards kind of materials. How do you feel that majoring in mechanical engineering instead of chemical or something more related, similar to John, I guess, um, how do you feel that that helped you or maybe hurt you in working with this? Um So it's funny because I, I remember John asking <laughs> asking me when I first went to his office how much chemistry I had taken and I was just like oh you know like chem 301 the first semester chemistry and he asked how much lab experience I had and I was just like well none <laughs> um, and actually a lot of my degree had a, a large manufacturing focus because I worked in a machine shop and I really enjoyed like the process of actually building things um, but thankfully I mean I joined joined his lab when I was a junior so I was able to sort of shift to more materials focused courses uh, still understood you know mostly nothing and in, in those courses but uh, played the game to get decent grades um, I, I think so I mean I, I can't complain too much right like if I had majored in chemistry or physics I probably could have understood a lot more of what John was talking about in the beginning but at the same time 
uh, I may not have been aware of his presence or taken the, the risk or chances that I did that actually got me into his laboratory, right? Because um, I, I was getting my undergrad in the same building he had his lab in. Um, so I, I guess it's a, I wouldn't even call it a wash. I mean, I wouldn't trade my degree or my experience for anything. Um, and I'm fairly certain that if I had majored in chemistry, I mean, I may have still gone to graduate school because um, I, I think to still do research in industry or research period, that's what a lot of chemists have to do. Um, but I, I don't think I would have made, you know, met John or made my way into his laboratory because I probably wouldn't have even been aware that he was he was there uh, until he won the Nobel Prize and you know UT marketed the crap out of that. But um, so yeah, um, I guess it, it really just helps me that put put me in the right position that uh, by chance I found out the research he was doing and asked to join his laboratory. Again, long-winded answer, sorry, but. Sure. No, 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 That's, it was really amazing to hear. And I'm also curious, so do you really feel that like what you originally major in or what you major in at all, even with your PhD, kind of dictates what you're gonna do? Because there are these stories of people majoring in like history and then becoming data scientists. Do you feel that it has really any correlation or anything? Yeah, I mean, I, I think so. Um, at least for me, I mean, being in, again, just by complete chance, being in an area that kind of picked up steam during the pandemic, right? Um, battery science and battery materials. And um, I think even even if I weren't actually in an, in an industry setting to working on battery materials, I mean, I'd still want to be doing the same type of research that I got my PhD in um, or something semi-related. Um, so I think I mean, luckily, material. I mean, this is the beautiful. I think it's a beautiful thing about material science is it's such a broad field, um, and not necessarily uh, some fundamentals of some areas can't necessarily be applied to fundamentals of everything. But um, at least in terms of like, uh, I don't feel like there's too much that I could do or work on where it wouldn't be where it would be like a complete deviation of the true fundamentals of materials. Like I could work on semiconductors, or I could work on um, you know, polymers or things like that. And I, I sort of have like a, a basis that I can build on in, in a lot of different areas from my PhD. Um, so yeah, it's not quite the same as, as majoring in history and then having to learn how to code to become a data scientist or anything like that. Um, I would have to build up, you know, uh, spe you know, special subject area knowledge for some things, but I, I think materials, sets people up to to really have a broad foundation to build on um so shouts out to material science <laughs> <laughs> sure yeah and was there like one moment in your mechanical engineering or i guess what was the moment that really made you shift over to materials was it meeting john no actually it was uh meeting a professor called lou Ravenberg. um and i remember i took his i mean I had an internship lined up at a, a company and unfortunately uh, I hadn't well adjusted to college yet so my GPA dipped below their their um, their requirements so they revoked their internship offer and then uh, I had a friend at the time that mentioned he was just like oh if I'm going to be in Austin I'm going to take coursework and you know make progress towards my degree and I mean that, that made sense to me so I ended up taking materials during the summer where it was the only course I took and was able to focus on it um, and then I would say that that's where 
I was still working in the machine shop, so everything we were learning was like applicable to things I was kind of doing. It was obviously in a machine shop, you're not worried about the atomic arrangement of the steel or anything like that, but just taking, kind of realizing like, okay, the hardness of one steel is more than the hardness of the other steel because of, you know, these factors and that'll affect the way I machine it via like, um, because it has different properties. Um, but realizing how useful that information was. And then Lou was a, a tremendous professor and, and, you know, I went to his office hours and he was also teaching the, um, the lab portion of that course. And um, yeah, so, I mean, when I, when I took that course and, and, and was able to learn from uh, Professor Rabenberg, that was sort of the, the defining moment of realizing I wanted to specialize in materials. Um, and then, UT Austin had a sort of like a material advanced materials engineering certificate. Now they have a minor, but I, I they didn't have that in place back when I was a an undergraduate. And in order to get that certificate, you had to have a research component, which was like a separate course, and you had to have a professor oversee your research. And that's I mean, I, like I, I had heard Goodenough's name, but didn't really know who he was or realize the um, weight of his contributions to. Um, you know, I guess humanity. <laughs> so I cold emailed him asking if he would supervise my research for the certificate. And then that's sort of where that whole thing kicked off. Um, but yeah, long story short, it started the summer of like 2013 or whatever it was when I took materials engineering for mechanical engineers. Sure. Yeah. And I guess to kind of wrap things up, um, if you could give one piece of advice to a college student or really anyone that is going through a similar path to you in education, what would you say? Um, I would I would say don't um, don't feel the need to stick to a plan because um, that just to elaborate a little bit like at each step from like my senior year of high school up until even recently like something would happen and then like my path would be sort of sidetracked and then I would have a plan for that path and then something else would happen which would send me on a different path and um, I think if, if I could go back and tell myself one thing that I could have saved myself a lot of like mentor mental turmoil of just saying like you know you don't always don't you don't need to stick to a plan and things will as long as you enjoy what you're working on and, and work with passion and things will be okay yeah that's I, that's a really great view thank you yeah, yeah. Uh, I hope that helps somebody that hears it. <laughs> Hopefully, yeah. All right, well, thank you so much, Nick, for coming on, and I hope you have a really great day. Yeah, of course. Anytime.